0: I think what I love most about his life, he was a flawed individual in many ways, and he knew that he was. But I think he engaged in what I would call a a risky discipleship. I, I noticed in particular he... One of the comments he wrote on a student paper one time was, "Take more risks." And he lived a risky life. He lived on the edge. He lived on the precipice. And um, there's uh, there's a famous letter that was written, and he talked about, "You got to stay on the edge of the herd. You don't ride you don't ride in the center or you'll get trampled. And you don't ride too far off, or you won't any longer be uh, a helpful member of the community." you got to ride on the edge and, and by that I don't think he meant and I don't think Gene England understood this to that one is deliberately uh, provocative or challenging or contentious but it means that we have to we have to believe that there is something wonderful and mysterious and unknown uh, in spite of what has been revealed and that we have to be willing sometimes to venture forth and to take intellectual risks And to ask hard questions, Uh, I think the belief that preceded all of his questions was his confidence that if the gospel cannot withstand the most rigorous scrutiny, then it does not deserve our loyalty.
1: That's Terrell Givens, popular LDS scholar and author is currently a Neil A. Maxwell Senior Research Fellow at Brigham Young University and author of several noteworthy books on Mormon history and theology. Terrell is known for books such as People of Paradox, By the Hand of Mormon, and The Pearl of Greatest Price. He has also co-authored several popular books with his wife Fiona, including The Christ Who Heals, The Crucible of Doubt, and All Things New, Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. Most recently, Terrell has authored an expansive biography of Eugene England, one of the most infamous characters in modern LDS history. The book is Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism, available now through the University of North Carolina Press. An intellectual perhaps ahead of his time, England found himself in the crosshairs of LDS church authorities on several occasions for his theological speculations and political activism. Although somewhat controversial for the time, many of England's positions have shown him to be a visionary who was simply ahead of the Mormon curve. He refuted the idea of a priesthood ban on black members of the church, critiqued institutional sexism, and struggled with Mormon narratives of prophetic infallibility. Today on the Talk Mormonism podcast, Terrell Givens and I will spend some time reflecting on England's life, his formative years as a missionary to Samoa, his activism at Stanford, formation of the Dialogue Journal, and of course his notorious conflict with Bruce R. McConkie. We'll also talk about the social and religious shifts that culminated in what Terrell calls the Crisis of Mormon Modernism. It was within this context that Eugene England struggled to find his place. At the start of our interview, I asked Terrell what he thought of various labels used by different factions to describe his work as either too orthodox or not orthodox enough.
0: Well, I will invoke uh, Gene England as my model in, in this regard. <laughs> a biography was just published, uh, another biography, more of an intellectual biography, with the title Gene England, Mormon Liberal. Uh, well, he's a Mormon liberal who voted for Ronald Reagan twice. So Gene England despised categories and fl- political labels. And I think that in the public sphere, they seldom serve a benevolent purpose. So the fact that I get flack from both sides of the aisle, I think, to me, is probably a good sign that I'm hard to uh, paste a label on. Well, I wanted to,
1: to talk, obviously, uh, j- just to start. A biography is somewhat of a stylistic departure from, from your past work. So I wanted to pick your brain. What was it like working on a biography as opposed to some of your more theology-centered projects?
0: Well, I had done one before on Parley Pratt, together with Matt Groh. Uh, I was was reluctant to do a biography, especially uh, kind of as a matter of principle. uh, I'm rather skeptical to the idea of doing biographies of of living or recently deceased characters. I think one needs the prism of history to evaluate somebody more accurately and and meaningfully. His widow, Charlotte England, asked me to do the biography very shortly after his passing. And if anybody out there has ever met or know Charlotte England, they will realize the miraculous nature of my ability to resist for as long as I did. (laughs) Uh, But I finally became convinced that uh, a biography as a window into an important cultural moment in in the church's history was a worthwhile enterprise. And so it didn't feel as removed from much of my other work as one might think. I felt because of his status as one of the church's most important speculative theologians and essayists, that it was appropriate to make a number of digressions into LDS theology and uh, the, the doctrinal past and future, and so it actually felt more comfortable more enjoyable doing this work than I had anticipated.
1: One of the most compelling aspects of, of this book to me is is that it, it does act as both a biography, but also a history of what you refer to in the title as the crisis of modern Mormonism. And that narrative is sort of interwoven th- throughout the entire Eugene England story. So maybe to begin, it would be a good idea. You and I talked uh, prior to the interview about how you know Eugene England maybe may not be a, a household name to to some up and coming uh, young Latter-day Saints, millennials. And so if you wouldn't mind, could we begin with with maybe a, just a brief overview of who who Eugene England was and and then maybe we can define this uh, crisis that you write about as well.
0: Yeah, you know, we kind of are operating in a deficit in LDS cultural history because we're such a, a hierarchical Priesthood-driven church, that people who don't have official position in the church uh, are on an uneven playing field when it comes to the, um, you know, the, the Book of Historical Remembrance. And so he's disappeared pretty quickly from our modern consciousness. But Jean England was a hugely important figure in the modern era of Mormonism for a number of reasons. He was kind of like the, well, I'd compare him to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who made landmark contributions in about 17 different disciplines. But on the one hand, Gene England was the greatest practitioner of the personal essay in our church's history. He was the co-founder of Dialogue, which is the oldest independent journal in the Latter-day Saint tradition. He was the founder of the first program in Mormon Studies at uh, Utah Valley, what is now Utah Valley University. Right. He he was a very very popular professor at BYU. He he ran a kind of salon out of his home uh, through much of the seventies and into the eighties that served as a kind of gathering place for the LDS intelligentsia and creative minds. And so he was just a a true cultural force within uh, the second half of uh, the twentieth century of Mormonism.
1: I loved. Um... You span the, the, the length of his, of his life um, and, and his, the beginning of, of the book sort of centers around his upbringing, um, his formative years, um, his, his mission to Samoa. Um, so I wondered if we could just talk briefly about uh, any particular incidences that you think really shaped who he would become.
0: Well, Lowell Benyon was certainly the most important formative influence in his life. He, as a seminary student, or an institute student, more properly, he he uh, sat at the feet of Lowell Benyon and was first awakened, in his own description, to uh, a questioning discipleship. I guess I would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the place of doubt in our culture is hotly contested, and the the word itself has been employed as both a, a weapon and a criticism, but. But Gene England believed that doubt could be a useful stage in discipleship, and he learned that from Benyon when when Benyon raised questions in Gene England's mind about the popular folk theologies surrounding the priesthood ban. And so that became a kind of intellectual and doctrinal awakening for him. Another seminal moment more spread out was his experience as a missionary in Samoa, when it was only really toward the end of his mission that he was able to move beyond his own personal frustrations with uh, church culture and uh, what he saw as, as peers and fellow missionaries who were functioning less than you know, full capacity and worthiness, that, that he finally became centered in his own mind on the atonement of Jesus Christ and its transformative power in the lives of the people that he was teaching. And he later referred to that awakening as the reason behind his decision to switch from a career in the sciences to a career in the humanities. He wanted to get closer to what he thought was the the content of the human experience and how he might participate both in kind of celebrating and promoting uh, the more humanistic aspects of, of our lives.
1: When I was reading about his mission, uh, he seemed to sort of uh, embody the, the famous quote by Mark Twain, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. He certainly uh, didn't stay narrow-minded if he was ever narrow-minded at all, but the, the mission seemed to sort of work that that out of him.
0: Well, it did in very particular ways. I mean, Samoa at that time, right, we're talking about the 1950s, was very much lodged in the American imagination um, as a kind of a caricature of primitivism that had largely been promulgated by the famous anthropologist Margaret Mead, uh, coming of age in Samoa. And so Gene England and his wife, Charlotte read that book in preparation for their missionary work in Samoa. And as a consequence, they were filled with all kinds of stereotypes and caricatures. And it didn't take him long to to appreciate the fact that uh, one has to, uh, I think, live a, a kind of more authentic, um, maybe ministerial, kind of role among a um, amidst the people, to see them with with different kinds a different kind of eyes, and so he 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 very soon became sensitized to all kinds of what he would describe as kind of colonialist. Uh, impositions on our understanding of the Samoan people, which he thought were perpetrated by members of the church, as well as by anthropologists. And so he came away deeply disturbed by the way in which the gospel and America are too often synonymous, and evangelization too often acquired a kind of Americanization. And so that really was uh, hugely influential in his, his subsequent life, where one of his central kind of self-appointed missions was that of trying to tease apart the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ from a particularly American interpretation of it.
1: Right. Can... um. You, you label uh, and obviously we're, we're here to talk about Eugene England but so I don't want to dwell on uh, Lowell binion uh, all too much but uh, you have him labeled in the book as uh, in a section as both a mentor and a martyr and I wonder uh, can you tell us the significance of those two uh, titles for Lowell binion
0: well he was a mentor in the sense that I already indicated that he was the most influential teacher that Eugene England ever had martyr in the sense that he was uh, he was so committed to the gospel, so recognized and renowned for his discipleship that he was one of those rare individuals in the 20th century who was invited to speak at general conference, even though he held no high ecclesiastical position. And yet his views uh, sometimes called into question some of what he thought were rather undogmatic assertions by some in the leadership. And Today, he'd probably be labeled a a liberal, Uh, and he eventually was forced out of the church educational system that he had given so much of his life to because his views and interpretations and teachings were not welcome in an era that was characterized by kind of hyper-authoritarian dogmatism from certain of the more prominent individuals in the church leadership of that era. And so in a, in a kind of eerie way, his life, the trajectory of his life, and its culmination, anticipated almost to the exact details, the trajectory of Jeannie Warren's own life.
1: So I was gonna say, as a sort of foreboding, um, I don't know if he saw it that way at the time, uh, probably not, but
0: I don't think he did. There's no indication he saw himself in, in, uh, in terms of the pattern of Lo Benjamin's life. But it certainly followed very closely.
1: Can we talk about um, his time at Stanford? This was a time of, of some activism, particularly when it came to issues of race and, and the church. How, how did he navigate that?
0: Well, he didn't navigate it very well. That was part of the problem. <laughs> uh, nobody would ever accuse Gene England of being a, a wise navigator. He, he was at uh, Berkeley, or excuse, excuse me, Stanford, there in Palo Alto in the 1960s, of course, that area is a kind of hotbed of student radicalism. This is during uh, civil war, the era of civil war protests and of protests against the Vietnam War alike. And he found himself really powerfully drawn to uh, a kind of lifelong commitment of opposition to militarism. And what he saw as a kind of hyper-nationalism among members of the church. And he also became very, very committed at that time to uh, fighting racism in all of its forms. So that put him in tension with the church, or at least with church culture, and in some cases, church leadership, for two very particular reasons. One is because the church as a whole was uh, almost entirely uh, supportive of the Vietnam War. In a phase of kind of hyper-conservative patriotism. And so for him to take public stands against the Vietnam War definitely was against the grain of the, the majority of Latter-day Saint members. And the person that he most closely associated with in the leadership at that time was Marion D. Hanks, and Marion D. Hanks happened to be the church's serviceman's representative. And so that put them in some ways on opposite sides of the issue. And then, of course, at that point in church history, there was still a ban uh, that pro- prohibited people of African descent from having a priesthood. And he found that a very difficult position to support as a faithful member of the church when he was so personally committed to fighting racism. And so he wrote in his lifetime two articles on the subject of the priesthood ban and neither one was uh, exactly well received in the higher echelons
1: is your perception that he were he alive today he the um, issues surrounding lgbtq issues would would he be at the at the forefront of of um, fighting for for some sort of uh, change there or uh, what what is what is your perception, having having written and and studied him so in depth?
0: Well, well, one thing that set Gene England apart from many others in the tradition of dissent, both within and without the LDS tradition, was that he never, for a moment, would have approved of that label. He never, for a moment, would have considered himself a dissenter, mm. or a critic, or an alternate voice the struggle of his life was to try to carve out as much space for expansive and original thinking on controversial topics as was possible within the orbit of orthodoxy. And so the agony of his life was that he considered himself to be absolutely faithful and orthodox in terms of every central commitment of the church, doctrinally speaking. And so, for example, he he spoke out even in that period, back in the '70s. He spoke out powerfully in sympathy with the LGBT community, as they would come mm-hmm. to be called. And yet, he never, for a moment, questioned that uh, heteronormativity was a, was an eternal principle. In other words, his position today would be considered reactionary, not progressive because he believed that there was, right, like the Catholic Church affirms, that there was some kind of spiritual woundedness that was associated with, with same-sex attraction. Uh, the same was the true of his writings on the priesthood ban. He never, for a moment, suggested that it was not divinely inspired. He affirmed that it was divinely inspired, but argued that it was a consequence of white racism, not black unworthiness. And so if he were speaking and writing today, I I speculate that he would try as hard as he could to find some way to carve out more expansive ways of thinking about sexuality without calling into question the church's official statements on the family or on the nature of human sexuality. So I imagine that by doing so, he would probably be found to be dangerously liberal by the left and too insufficiently progressive by the, I think I mean the other way around by the left.
1: If we can, let's, uh, let's move to uh, his, his work on, on, on dialogue. And, and uh, perhaps before we do that, I thought your book did an excellent job of setting up the, the context and the, and, and the, uh, the time where the church was, um, as far as uh, their, what you call their Latter-day Saint intellectual legacy. I wondered if we could maybe set up this discussion about dialogue and its contributions by talking about things that you think may be relevant to that, that either the chartered course of the church and education, or or even the the priesthood correlation program.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that Latter-day Saints have an intellectual heritage to be tremendously proud of. I mean, from the school of the prophets, to, uh, you know, the, the first building dedicated in Missouri is not the temple lot, it's a schoolhouse lot, to the establishment of the University of Nauvoo, to, I mean, we could go on and on. Joseph Smith's pronouncements were consistent and numerous on the subject of the glory of God being intelligence and the need to, to you know, to, to, to prove, the, to establish the truth by proving contraries, by experimentation. He was intellectually adventurous and so were his contemporaries. And uh, Latter-day Saints had a far higher level of education as a norm than the rest of Americans throughout the 19th century. Uh, they disproportionately filled the ranks of female medical students in America in that era. I and mean, we could go on and on and on. So as I say, there are these foundations, there's this legacy of intellectual openness and of a belief that that, that saintliness really has to combine the life of the heart and the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. And this is true, I think, that, that the heyday, the kind of golden age of LDS intellectual history is the 1930s, when we have a, a number of apostles with PhDs. You've got Whitso and Merrill and Talmadge. Uh, the, the leading lights and intellectuals of the church are the ones writing the manuals. they are people, you know, like Witso writing books like Joseph Smith as a Scientist and Rational Theology. So, there's this this confidence that the gospel can and should embrace the best of the secular and the best of the spiritual worlds, kind of typified by Orson Pratt's observatory that he builds in the shadow of the Salt Lake Temple. Let's combine the temple and the observatory. And all of this comes crashing down in the 1930s after the church, as an experiment, sends a number of CES employees, BYU professors of religion, back east to school at a time when the higher criticism is all the rage. Some of these BYU professors come back to BYU, uh, espousing a very progressive Protestant version of scripture and of revelation. Surveys, which the church conducts at that time, show that there is a startling lack of orthodoxy among BYU students. Uh, J. Rubin Clark comes into the leadership and and brings in his wake a number of very conservative leaders of the church, Joseph Fielding Smith and and, and others. And so a period of of reaction sets in, in the 1930s and 40s, and it's still very much with us, uh, parts of it today. They were certainly with us in the 1950s and 60s. J. Reum Clark's most important lasting contribution to church culture was probably his charted course of church education, which was kind of a handbook for this, the church educational system. And it was easily interpreted, I think it was widely understood, to be a statement that asserted the, the distinctness of the academic realm on the one hand and the spiritual realm on the other. It was kind of like a restatement of Tertullian's Right, the church right. father's statement. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Right, these are two separate things. And so the church was just beginning a page, uh, a stage of intellectual openness and a kind of rediscovery of its roots in the 1970s. We, we see the professionalization of the historical department of the church, we see the founding of BYU studies. And so Gene England is is there on the scene in the midst of what he feels is this kind of wave of of intellectual opening and expansiveness. And he wants to be a part of that. And so in 1966, he co founds the journal Dialogue in the hope that it will provide a major forum for thoughtful Latter day Saints to come together and have rigorous investigation and discussion. Of, of church doctrines, both uh, social and, and political and theological.
1: Do you, do you see its impact as, um, or, or rather, do you see that it accomplished what, uh, what Eugene England set out to accomplish, or did he get to see that in his lifetime?
0: Well, no, his vision was certainly never fully realized, um, but maybe, maybe that's because Zion and all of its parts will always be a work in progress. Good point. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, BYU Studies was shut down temporarily after its first issue because uh, there was an interpretation of the word of wisdom that offended a lot of people. Many of the articles in dialogue alienated some of the brethren. So the leadership uh, didn't, of course, take an official position, but individually and in personal communications with Gene England, they were divided. There were some who were fervent advocates of dialogue and thought intellectual, uh discussion and debate was healthy and and good. Others thought that dialogue was doing the work of undermining faith by asking difficult questions that didn't need to be asked. And so I I think it's clear that for the next generation, and in some ways continue to the present day, uh, we get mixed signals about the place of the intellectual so-called in LDS uh, culture. You know, we had talks delivered in the 1980s that... Referred specifically to intellectuals, so-called, as one of the three greatest sources of danger to the church, uh, but at the same time, we've got Brigham Young University trying to become, in the words of some aspirants, the the Harvard of the West, and uh, so it's it's uh, it. You know, we we went through the the, the period of the September 6, where there was a retrenchment and where they withdrew professional historians from the leadership of the church historical department. Then, you know, beginning at the time that I first became active as a scholar back around, uh, you know, about the turn of the century, suddenly we're, we're opening up the archives again, and there's a renewed push for openness. We see the Joseph Smith papers as one of the fruits of this, and the Gospel Topics pages is another fruit of this. So we're we're still in this period right now, even as we speak. I think of there not being any clear kind of w- way that we can characterize LDS intellectual culture. It has its healthy and it has its unhealthy, um, I think, forces operating at the same time.
1: So it's sort of a sort of a mixed bag. I I, I think he would uh, relish the the victories and then you know maybe uh, hope for. <laughs> Hope for more progress.
0: Well, I think you'd be thrilled to see that that uh, over a half century after its founding, dialogue still has a, a, a pretty solid readership and, and reach. You,
1: um, of course, uh, no, no biography on uh, Eugene England is is complete without the infamous McConkie incident, if you want to call it that. And was that was that difficult to, to write about? It's of course well documented.
0: It was. It was in as it still can arouse very strong feelings at the remove of now of, of over forty years. But you know, I uh, you know I'm a student of literature and uh, of, of Greek literature in particular, among others, and so I'm, I'm pretty well versed in the tragic tradition. <laughs> and and I, I think the most uh, searching and uh, powerful. Definition of the tragic was that of the, the German philosopher Hegel. And he said, What happens in the tragic is we find a universe in which one value with claim to absolute validity comes into conflict with another claim that has absolute validity as well. So it's a conflict of good versus good. Mm-hmm. That's the basis of the tragic. And I that's the, the lens through which I look at this in many other episodes in LDS history. Some will think that's too sanguine of view uh, and to give too much credit. But I I feel that this was a time, you know, we're, we're not that far out of the 60s. We're still in the aftershocks of the feminist revolutions and the sexual revolutions and the drug revolutions. I think right. it's a time when the church feels particularly uh, under siege from all of these secular forces. And so many in the leadership felt that it was their calling and responsibility to to hold the fort and to, to fortify the saints against what today we would call progressivism and against what they saw as lay attempts at uh, being expositors of doctrine. And so you had leaders in that uh, of that persuasion who were shutting down, trying to shut down Gene England in ways that at times were, were very cruel and dogmatic because they saw him as a threat to the, the faith, whereas Gene England absolutely committed to the gospel, seeing the collision that is coming down the road between uh, overly scripted church histories on the one hand and an opening of the archives and a more diverse and rich and complicated history on the other, is trying to affect a kind of mediation. And so the the incident that you're referring to in particular was a talk that he gave in 1979, and then again uh, in the Varsity Theater at BYU, in which he tried to reconcile divergent descriptions of God as, on the one hand, being a kind of progressive being, growing in omniscience and omnipotence, as we see in the King Follett discourse, and a God of absolute eternal, never beginning omniscience and omnipotence that some people associate with Hiram Smith and and his successors. And so Bruce Armakonky was alerted to the talk that Jean e. Lind gave in that regard, and very publicly condemned Gene England, though not by name, but everybody understood who the target was. In a talk he gave at BYU on the seven deadly heresies, and then again at general conference, when he referred to these pernicious doctrines that were being promulgated. So it was, it was tragic insofar as both men were operating with, I think, uh, good intent, trying to uh, affect saints in a positive way, and build a kingdom, but they had very different perspectives on how that was to be done at that particular moment in our intellectual history.
1: And you document well um, Eugene England's seemingly never-ending patience and and uh, I guess attempts to, to reconcile and feel like he was he was in the good graces of, of church leaders and and seen as someone who is a person of faith, and you have to you have to really feel a lot of compassion towards him for that.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, even his even his close friends and defenders will admit that at times he poked the bear just to poke the bear. <laughs> so he did like provocation. I, I think because he found it intellectually interesting to have you know fiercely contested opinions aired and 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 contested in a public space. And uh but there, when one reads his correspondence, right there, are over 200 boxes of his papers at the University of Utah archives. So, we have a, an extensive record of his communications and interactions and his personal journal. And it, you know, he was so quick to apologize to the brethren if he learned he had offended them, he was so distraught if he felt that he was being perceived as undermining or opposing the, the church in any way. Uh, so. The other really remarkable thing to me is that in the immediate aftermath of of the public humiliation he suffered at at the hands of some of the brethren, in his journal, he referred to these men as his heroes. And his his daughter would attest that never once in the household was he heard to speak an an unkind word against any of the brethren. Mm -hmm. So... I admire him because he, 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 he withstood so much, uh, as a, you know, misunderstanding and one could say abuse and yet was incredibly, uh, forbearing and forgiving.
1: How did he reconcile with, um, the, the fallibility of, of his leaders? You, you talked about how, um, he was very generous and, and, and not speaking, speaking ill, um. But do we know like, from a doctrinal or theological standpoint what his uh, reconciliation was with the amount of loyalty he offered and then fallibility on one hand? I
0: I, I think we do. I think we know exactly how he reconciled that discordance in his own mind because he wrote about it very poignantly toward the end of his life in his journal. And uh, the confusion that existed in his mind as he expressed it was that he had failed to recognize that a brother is not the same as the brethren. Mm. In other words, there there is a pretty clear, uh, I think, there's a pretty clear definition of dogma in our church. And Catholic Church has really nice distinctions between dogma and doctrine. Doctrine is official teaching. Dogma is what you're required to believe, uh, to be considered a, a member in good standing. Well, those, those two terms kind of uh, conflate in the Latter-day Saint tradition, but the, but the important point is that doctrine has to be expressed by a plurality uh, or consensus of the brethren. One apostle standing up at conference and making a statement isn't in and of itself constitutive of official church doctrine. No, no individual apostle has that authority. That's why we have quorums. And so it's toward the end of his life that he realizes That there had been discord between himself and particular members of the quorum. And that in his mind, that meant that he was out of harmony with the gospel, he was out of harmony with the church, out of harmony with the Lord. Hmm. And at the very end, he came too late to this recognition that I don't have to agree in every particular with every individual who's in a leadership position in order to feel good about my relationship to the church. And I, I think that that was. An important and valid insight.
1: You you talk in uh, chapter eight about the challenge of modernity on on religion generally, but especially Protestantism and Catholicism in the in the twentieth century. Um, and I thought this context was important. I, I wanted to talk about this uh, this challenge and and the impact it had. But but you also are. are um, very clear that that Mormonism was able to avoid it um, for for a while when other faiths couldn't. So I, w- I well, wanted to sort of unpack that if you could.
0: Sure. The subtitle is the crisis of modern Mormonism, but more accurately, it should be the crisis of Mormon modernism, um, because modernism is a very specific moment in church history in the West. Protestants and Catholics alike refer to it as the crisis of modernism, and in both cases it was precipitated by developments in uh, archaeology and biblical studies alike that made it increasingly evident that the scriptures and the church as an institution were cultural formations, that in both cases, certainly one may believe and must believe, if one is a Christian, that there was a divine. A hand behind the creation of scripture and the church alike. But it became impossible to deny that there was a human element and that there was historical development in both cases. That's what precipitated this crisis of modernism. So the question then becomes, well, wait a minute, if if, if prophets are just human vessels who imperfectly transmit the word of God, then then where does that imperfection end and how much Mm -hmm. confidence can we have in the Bible? Right. So that was the Protestant crisis. Catholic crisis was more complicated because Catholics also believed in an an infallible institution. And so they also had to ask the question, well, if we see that the church really wasn't organized in the way we see it today in the first generation after Christ, then then, you know, how much of that development do we know is is operating independently of cultural influences? And so Mormonism managed to avoid that crisis for a number of reasons. I think one, because uh, Latter-day Saints and their leaders were intellectually isolated from uh, these developments, largely because our leaders didn't attend religious seminaries, schools of theology, divinity schools, because there was a kind of hostility to and suspicion of secular learning through much of 20th century Mormonism. And because the Latter-day Saint Church, um, maybe without, I think, solid doctrinal foundation, had increasingly embraced a kind of evangelical fundamentalism about scripture and about prophetic infallibility alike. And so they resisted those forces and in large part were oblivious to them. And then what happens in the 1970s, 60s, maybe 70s, I think, is that this delayed reaction sets in we have professional historians in the church historical department. Suddenly they're, they're reading right details in the church archives, the real, a much more complicated Joseph Smith, a much more complicated story of, right. of the book of Mormon, a much more complicated story of the evolution of priesthood, et cetera, et cetera. And so now the church has to answer and address those exact same challenges that, that other Christians had long ago dealt with. And so that is the context in which Gene uh, England has to be read and understood. I,
1: I noticed this, uh, this arc in your book. Um, and, and I wanted to get your take on it. It's, uh, it, it's perhaps unintentional, but uh, to me, it seemed almost unavoidable. What I noticed is just the seemingly uh, prophetic nature of figures like Lowell Binion, uh, Levina Fielding Anderson, uh, Leonard errington, Eugene England, just recognizing the the future challenges um, that that you know we would face today. and And this compared to instances of some shortsightedness on uh, of other men who are actually in official positions that include titles. That um you know, hold a, a certain re- revelatory quality. um and so i I wanted to ask after following this arc, do you see that that contrast and 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 what should we what should we make of it?
0: Well, um, yeah, i'm, <laughs> I'm I, I try to withhold judgments and and label these differences maybe in particular ways, but i I, I think one thing you have to consider is uh, we'll take Gene England and Lowell Benin in particular, okay these are men who day in day out from sunrise to sunset are engaged face to face with young people mm-hmm. at the most intellectually uh, formative moments in their lives and so i think it's it's not to be wondered at that they would have been the first to recognize what are the what are the great questions that are coming to be asked that weren't being asked a generation earlier, they are the first to kind of be attuned to the sensibility of these new generations. And because in the case of Gene England in particular, he had worked in the LDS historical archives before he was employed at BYU, he knew firsthand that the the lives and narratives that had had, uh, constituted part of church history were were more complex and ambiguous in many cases. So he had greater sympathy, and in many ways, I think he accurately would be described as incredibly prescient when it comes to foreseeing what today we refer to as as the faith crisis that is coming around the corner. And uh, I think it's not to be wondered at in an age before the internet created this deluge of information with ready access, that uh, the historical narratives could be controlled and maintained from a kind of centralized historical department. I think it's important also to recognize that it's easy to create all kinds of tempting mythologies around this division and I always want to point out, for example, that that uh, in our in the church's model of church leadership, uh, a degree in history is not a prerequisite and so, I don't think it's the case. I don't buy into some of these conspiracy narratives that suggest the church was deliberately obfuscating or hiding or concealing, uh, you know, fuller and ampler narratives. You know, the brethren aren't spending their time in the church archives reading journals from the 19th century. Right. Uh, they're they're otherwise employed as, as apostles and prophets. And so it's not to be wondered at, but it's not until we get professional historians in the office that that these complexities and and, and other things start to emerge. So that's that's my version.
1: I think it goes without saying, and and others have pointed out that there are par- parallels between your work and and Eugene England's. Um, and as I was reading about him, I was wondering if you have ever found yourself in similar situations to England si- situations in which maybe your uh, theological writings or or musings or whatever were were not well received, or are we now in a situation where we're we're far removed from from that time?
0: Well, I don't I don't think we're as far removed from that time as as some of us would like to see. Um, sure. Gene England made a habit of the moment somebody was called to be a member of the quorum of the Twelve, he got a letter from Gene England <laughs> saying, hi, I'm Gene England and here's some of my poetry or here's one of my essays. So I, I think he invited disaster when he so um, imploringly and uh, explicitly solicited the approval of the brethren. For everything he wrote, I, I think it's a healthier environment when there is some space between scholars who are trying to do their work as faithful members of the church, but as also, but but also true to the commitments of their discipline and the brethren declare official doctrine. I think one of the uh, one of the I think unfortunate inferences that often can be drawn, sometimes by lay members of the church themselves, is that anybody who presumes to try to excavate or elaborate a theological history is uh, trying to declare doctrine. And I, I think it would help if we had a healthier respect for theology in our church as something distinct from doctrine. Theology is about asking questions and looking for backgrounds and contexts and ramifications, whereas doctrine is, right, a set of words spoken authoritatively. Hmm. Gene England thought he could thread that needle by prefacing some of his writings, like one one, one essay that got him into trouble uh, that was about polygamy in heaven. And he prefaced it by saying this is a work in speculative theology. And that should have been insulation. He's saying, "Look, I'm making no claim to authority. i'm just I'm just trying to understand and extrapolate from what we know to what we're not sure about. And he was specifically told, "No, we don't welcome speculative theology, and you're not to do it anymore." So um, I don't know. I, I, I think to some extent that attitude has softened because we now have faithful, members that I believe are untrammeled in contributing to journals like uh, the Journal of Mormon Philosophy and Theology. <laughs> we have a number of Latter-day Saints who are pretty comfortable wearing the label of theologian, although I think it still elicits a, a fair degree of, of suspicion in certain quarters.
1: For you personally, what what has been the most uh, impactful, meaningful work or, or writing from, from Eugene England?
0: Well, I think his uh, there are a couple of his, his essays. One is, um, and it was only published posthumously, was his essay on the Weeping God. And, uh, of course, my wife and I have written a book with that title. Right. And yet Fiona had never actually read Gene's article, so she wasn't in any way influenced by it. But I, I think he was the first to express in writing a recognition of how unprecedented... That exposition of a God who literally weeps was. I think his most influential essay was probably uh, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. And the message of that essay has never been more needed than it is in the present moment, because he said that true discipleship will always require a necessary tension between the imperfections of the institution and your loyalty to Christ. And I think what I most admire about England, the man, is that what came through in every word he ever wrote was his unwavering love for the Christ. And uh, he he recognized that the institution was not always identical with the Christ. And uh, so I think that's probably been of tremendous importance for me.
1: In, uh, in, in closing, I, I wanted to ask... Um, what, what do you what do you hope people will take away from from your book, both the the um, LDS academic audience and and even the average Latter Day Saint in the pews? I,
0: I think w- what I love most about his life he was a flawed individual in many ways, and he knew that he was. But I think he engaged in what I would call a, a, a risky discipleship. Uh, I, I noticed in particular he. One of the comments he wrote on a student paper one time was, "Take more risks," mm-hmm. and he lived a risky life. He lived on the edge. He lived on the precipice. And um, there's uh, there's a famous letter that was written, and he talked about, "You got to stay on the edge of the herd. You don't write. You don't ride in the center, or you'll get trampled. And you don't ride too far off, or you won't any longer be." Uh, a helpful member of the community. You gotta ride on the edge. And, and by that I don't think he meant, and I don't think Gene England understood this to mean that one is deliberately uh, provocative or challenging or contentious, but that it means that we have to we have to believe that there is something wonderful and mysterious and unknown uh, in spite of what has been revealed and that we have to be willing sometimes to venture forth and to take intellectual risks and to ask hard questions. Uh, I think the belief that preceded all of his questions was his confidence that if the gospel cannot withstand the most rigorous scrutiny, then it does not deserve our loyalty. And I think that's a beautiful perspective to take, um, I wrote a book in which uh my second book in which I attempted to read every negative thing that had ever been written or said about the Book of Mormon in the nineteenth mm-hmm. and into the twentieth century, and I did so on the assumption that if the Book of Mormon couldn't withstand that level of scrutiny, it didn't deserve my assent and in the end, his confidence prevailed he he went to his death unshaken in his absolute love for both Jesus Christ and His gospel that He believed that Joseph Smith had fully revealed, and uh, I think that's a great lesson of His life for me, at least. Well, I, I
1: appreciate it, and thank you so much for for joining me uh, today, Terrell. I hope I hope this book continues to get the attention and and uh, praise it deserves. Again, the the book is Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of uh, Modern Mormonism. And it's available through the University of North Carolina Press and, and of course, Amazon.com. We'll we'll provide a a link uh, to the book in the show notes. So thank you again, uh, Terrell Gevins, for being here.
0: Wonderful to be here. I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Talk Mormonism podcast. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. It also helps when you leave us a review so others can find out about the show. Thanks again.